Welcome to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My name is Jonathan Edwards, and I serve as a pastor at the Grace Brethren Chapel located in Northwest Ohio. The goal of this podcast is to teach God's truth and how to apply it accurately to one's life so that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed as you contemplate God's word. Greetings, saints and fellow bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Once again, it's great to be back with you. Sorry for the delay in podcast publishing. The month of May was incredibly busy. I had two weddings to perform, another wedding to attend. My whole family got sick for about three days. And uh, I, that all of that on top of the uh, regular ministry slash preaching schedule was uh, just, just a bit overwhelming. So happy to be back in here today to record another episode for you guys. Today, we're going to look at our first ever podcast mailbag. So these are some questions that I've gotten from some of my friends who listen to the podcast. And um, oftentimes, we get together and have dinner or our, our families get together and these types of questions come up. And I said, why don't you just send me those questions and I'll turn them into a mailbag episode. And so here we are with a mailbag episode. If you would like to submit a question to be discussed on the Jed Breaks Bread podcast, feel free to email me at mrjed2007 at gmail.com. Email me at that email address with your question and I'll try to get it into a future podcast episode. Okay, so let's get rolling with the first question. First question is, why is fasting rarely discussed or practiced amongst evangelical conservative Christians? Now, I think this is a fascinating question because the the writer of the question is obviously noticing something that is present in the Gospels and present in the lives of other religions, but not very present amongst evangelical Christians. Now, I have to say that I practice fasting, but I do it primarily for health reasons. I very rarely have practiced fasting for spiritual reasons. And the best resource that I've ever found, though, to discuss fasting for spiritual resources is actually um, found in the book Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, written by Donald Whitney. If you've never read this book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, this is one of the most fabulous books that you could get to discuss the various um, disciplines that should characterize us as believers. It's a great way to do practical theology. Okay, so he's really talking about practical theology. Let me just give you a rundown of, you know, the topics here. Bible intake, prayer, worship, evangelism, serving others, stewardship, fasting, silence and solitude, journaling, learning, and perseverance. What a great um, collection of writings on these important spiritual disciplines. Now, we're talking specifically about the discipline of fasting. Why is this not done? Why is it rarely discussed? Well, I'm just going to go ahead and answer why I don't think it's rare, why it's not discussed or rarely done. And I think it is largely cultural. I think we in America, and I'm speaking again from an American perspective, we in America have a culture of food and eating, and we typically design um, lots of functions around food. So if you're going to meet somebody, 
it's for dinner or it's for coffee or it's for ice cream. Very rarely in America do you have a meeting that takes place between individuals uh, that doesn't involve some type of food. And I know churches are very good at this, right? Churches have potlucks, churches have coffee and donut time, churches have other fellowship times where food is almost essential to the gathering space. And so because so many so much of our cultural life revolves around doing things with food, having discussions or meetings with food, the idea of fasting doesn't really rise to the forefront of our mind. And I, I think this is different in other cultures. And so I can't really speak to those cultures, but I can speak to America and why in America this is culturally um, not practiced. Now, I will say that um, in addition to the cultural issue of, you know, we just don't practice it, I think there's a bit of fear surrounding fasting. I think there's uh, maybe an unhealthy fear or a thought that I can't do this, I need food to function. We have been so conditioned in America and really in the West to think, you know, I need my three square meals a day, I need a couple snacks, I need to feed my metabolism. Uh, so, so all the advice that we've received around health and fitness tells us that we should eat regularly, like every two to four hours. And so the thought of not eating for a period of time brings about a bit of fear to us. And so I, I think we're so comfortable and we're so conditioned to eat that we don't talk about fasting or consider the value of fasting. Now, here is a few things that Donald Whitney points out about fasting. I want to, I want to, these are so good. I just want to share them with you. Fasting from a Christian perspective is a voluntary abstinence from food or something else. So traditionally we think of fasting from food, but you could also fast from media or social media. You could fast from uh, a specific type of food, okay? You could fast from uh, activities in the scriptures. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that married couples could fast from having intimacy for a short period of time to devote themselves to prayer. So fasting, while we commonly think of it in the context of food, it can be done in, in a number of other contexts as well. It's important to note that fasting is both voluntary and spiritual. Fasting is supposed to be something you do voluntarily and for a spiritual purpose. So I opened up this discussion by saying that I fast a lot of times for health reasons. And it, it just makes me feel better. It helps to kind of like reset my gut. It helps me to, I think, have better focus when I'm fasting uh, so that if I really need to concentrate on something, fasting brings clarity to my mind. And that's not a bad reason to fast. But I, when I consider my fasting, I don't often consider it in terms of doing something spiritual. The kind of fasting that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, though, is a spiritual fasting. And when people think about fasting, usually they're thinking of some type of spiritual component to the fast, okay? And I think in one of the ways I've already answered this question, you can see that when Paul says to married couples in 1 Corinthians 7, 
fast from sexual intimacy for a while, the purpose of that fast is to devote yourselves to prayer. Now, you, you will be devoting yourselves to prayer probably about some big thing that is happening in your life. It would be something that uh, is significant and meaningful to you as a married couple, and it's supposed to be a limited fast in order to accomplish prayer. So the idea of fasting is you're abstaining from one activity in order to devote time to another activity. So fasting in general is supposed to be this abstinence from one thing and a devotion or a a promotion of to something else, okay? Now let's examine just for a moment what Jesus says about fasting in that sermon. He says this in Matthew chapter 6, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is secret, uh, what is done in secret, will reward you. Okay, so that's Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Notice how Jesus describes fasting. Whenever you fast, verse 16, verse 17, but you, when you fast. He is assuming that his followers, his disciples, will practice fasting. And I think this, is, has, this has been true for uh, the centuries, as Christians have fasted regularly in order to um, seek God's direction, God's guidance, God's favor, and uh, God's courage, the courage that comes from the Lord in various situations that they found themselves in. So Jesus doesn't command us to fast at a certain um, specified time. It's whenever you fast and when you fast. What I think is important here is that it should be done. And this is something that we should all consider. We should all consider the importance of fasting. It could be, you know, a a 24-hour fast. It could be a 12-hour fast. It could be maybe a 36 or a 48-hour fast. But we should consider fasting at different points in our lives. And here are some things that I want to share with you from Donald Whitney's book. He describes just some of the reasons why you might want to fast, okay? And I'm not going to go into great detail. I'm just going to give you some of the spiritual reasons behind why you might want to fast. One is it strengthens your prayer life because you're taking a break from food to focus on prayer. A second reason for fasting is to seek God's guidance regarding important decisions that need to be made. A third reason to fast is to express grief. So maybe you have lost a loved one, or maybe a a, a very terrible and tragic situation has occurred in your life. Fasting to express grief is an appropriate reason to fast. Next, to seek deliverance or protection. Perhaps you, like Martin Luther, had to answer before a council of men and to um, seek the Lord's strength and seek wisdom from the Lord and to seek even his deliverance and protection as you stood upon his truth. Finally, 
the uh, final reason for fasting is to express repentance and to return to God, to make a new commitment to return to God. And I could elaborate on these. That would be a whole other episode. But I think just for the introduction that this is, fasting has a very important spiritual purpose, and as something that should be discussed more often but isn't, I think primarily because we're comfortable and we're lazy. I, I, I'm, I'm just being real honest. We're lazy and we're not disciplined. We don't practice self-control in order to take everything in our lives under the obedience and under the influence of the Word of God. So that's my thoughts on why fasting is rarely discussed or practiced. Now here's another question that came to the podcast mailbag, and um, this kind of relates back to what I discussed a couple last episode in the movie review about Nefarious. And this is the question. Can Satan or demons influence our thought life? Can they read our minds? Now, uh, let's, let's make a very clear distinction. We're talking about Christians here. So this is written by a Christian to a Christian past, pastor. And the, the, the author of this question is asking, can Satan or demons influence our thought life, like the thought lives of Christians? And I think this is a really pertinent question because we want to know and we should know and we should not be unaware of the schemes of the devil and how he works. We need to take very seriously the warning that we receive in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where Peter says, your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. We need to take that admonition very, very seriously. And so if he's a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to destroy, we need to ask, how does Satan destroy us? How could Satan impact Christians? And I think the primary way that he does it is through providing temptation, bringing temptation into our lives. He also, and his demons, use their abilities to bring thoughts into our mind or to weaken us in some way that we give in to the temptation of sin rather than saying no to the temptation of sin. Let's look, first of all, as we answer this question, at the primary passage in the New Testament that describes how we are to treat Satan, okay? How do we, how do we deal with his attacks? Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read the, the armor of God here for you. And I want you to notice, ask yourself this question as I read, is any part of the body left uncovered? Okay. Verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth. That's your waist. 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness, that's your chest, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So we have footwear. In addition, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So we've got a shield in our hand and take the helmet of salvation, that's for our head, and the sword of the spirit, that's our offensive weapon, okay? The other um, hand is, one hand has a shield for defense, the other hand has an offensive weapon, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So that would be the scriptures, okay? Every part of your body has some type of armor, we have one offensive tool, which is the sword of the Spirit, namely the Word of God. We need to be prepared for Satan to attack us in every way possible, and that includes our thought life. More, more um, Paul elaborates on this in greater detail in um, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now listen to what Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What fortresses? We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Where does this spiritual battle take place? Is it, you know, with the armor of God? Is that physical armor that I'm putting on and I'm ready to do physical battle with the demons uh, and the spiritual forces of darkness and even Satan himself? No, that's not the imagery. The imagery is that this is a spiritual armor that is put on my body so that I can do spiritual warfare against the demons themselves. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, we see the, the nature of the battlefield. It is an intellectual battlefield. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. What does that tell you? That tells you that you, in your, in your fight against Satan and his demonic forces, are doing so in a metaphysical level. It is in the mind. It is in the spiritual realm. And what does that imply? That implies that, yes, Satan and his demons can somehow influence our thought life. Now, it's not clear from the scriptures how exactly they are able to do it. They can, but they can do it. And I think you all know this is true. Think about it. Have there been times in your life where you've just been kind of like minding your own business, you're maybe working on a project, or you're focused on work, or you're with friends, and a thought pops into your head, and that thought is so wicked and so evil that it makes you like physically gasp and be like, no, I would not do that, you know? You have an actual physical repulsion to the thought that is brought into your mind. That, in my opinion, is how Satan... In, or his demons, can put thoughts into our mind. Now, I, I will say this. I do not believe that Satan and his demonic forces can read our minds. So they, they cannot, they're not like God. They don't know our thoughts while, we are, while they are still in our mind. But 
How many of us allow our thoughts to remain private for any length of time? Many of us speak our private thoughts outwardly, whether it's to our spouse or a trusted friend or a pastor, and we should not be ignorant to the fact that there are the spiritual forces of darkness, there are demons around us. Uh, I believe even when we come gather together at church, there are probably demons in the church building. There may be demons who go in and out of your household. These things aren't to be feared. These beings aren't to be feared. They're to be held in appropriate respect. So I, I don't mean, you know, we don't respect them. I don't mean that we consider them to be worthless or uh, we shouldn't take them lightly, but we don't fear them. Like, we're not afraid of them as if I should fear like a, a tiger that's loose or um, if I was out in the woods in British Columbia, I would fear a pack of wolves, okay? That's not how we're going to treat demons. We're going to have a healthy respect for their capabilities and their powers. We're going to acknowledge that they exist we're going to acknowledge that we are in daily battle with them, and we should understand that they can indeed influence our thought life. Now, I happen to believe that a demon cannot possess a Christian. So if you are a true born-again Christian, you cannot be possessed by a demon. However, you could be influenced by a demon. I mean, just consider the example of Jesus. What uh, what? Who came to Jesus when he was tempted in the desert? Satan himself. And Satan appeared to uh, Jesus and tempted him, and Jesus refused to give in to them temp- temptation. Who came to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3? The serpent, namely Satan. Satan came to Adam and Eve, and Satan himself tempted them. Now, he appeared to them in the form of a serpent. I don't think that he's uh, going around the world today appearing in the form of a serpent. However, he can appear. He can use other people. Uh, he He can do, and his spiritual forces or the other demons, they can do a lot of different things to influence our thought life as Christians. They cannot possess us because we are possessed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. And so the spirit of Satan, which would be himself or the demonic forces, the spirit of Satan cannot dwell with the Spirit of God. So a believer cannot be possessed by Satan. However, it's absolutely clear that Satan and his demonic forces can somehow influence us and communicate to us, and we can fall prey to that. Uh, there's a couple of good illustrations in the Old Testament where a one of Satan's um, demons goes before the throne of God and says, I'll be a lying voice in the mouth of the prophets, and it will persuade the king to do something that he shouldn't do, but he wants to do. And this happened, I think, um, I think this is like, Second uh, Kings 17 or 18. I didn't have time to look it up. But there's a, a good example of how this demon spirit went and took possession or at least influenced this group of prophets to say something that was contrary to the, the will of God for this particular king. 
So I think there's no doubt at all that Satan and his demonic forces can influence our thought life, but they cannot read our minds and they cannot possess us in the same way that they possessed people who are unbelievers, okay? I do believe that unbelievers can be possessed by Satan and his demonic forces, and he, do, he uses them. He, Satan and the demons use human beings for very um, wicked purposes, to accomplish chaos and the influence of others to choose evil rather than choosing what is good and true. All right, final question for this month's mailbag. Final question. How do I respond to Gay Pride Month? It is June 1st as I am making this recording, and it is the kickoff of quote-unquote Gay Pride Month in the United States. And you should know, if you have social media, that every corporation that you follow is probably going to uh, do some form of the rainbow in their corporate logo this month. They'll have some type of pride, honor, celebration, something of that effect. There will be numerous uh, pride parades in major cities all across the United States. And uh, this is just a month that the, the LGBTQ community has co-opted to celebrate their debauchery and their sinfulness. How do we respond to this as Christians, okay? So first of all, let me just begin by saying um, this is something that I've, I think about every year, and I'm not sure that I have, like, strong conclusions or answers or a lot of, like, concrete action points, but I, I'm just going to give you some of the things that I've really wrestled through, and, you know, I, I think... I think as a Christian, I want to be a light in my community. I want to uphold the Word of God. And I, um, I think some of us as Christians are afraid that if we speak out against Gay Pride Month, then somehow we're being unloving or uncharitable. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think we need to stand on what God says is the truth. And if that means, you know, you make a post on social media disavowing Pride Month or talking about, you know, the fact that, yeah, pride, those who would promote pride are promoting sinfulness, but there is an answer for sin, uh, because sin is the, sin is a condition that all men uh, are born with. It is natural to all men, and here's the solution to sin. It's the gospel. I, I might do that on, on my social media accounts this month. Um, you know, I really haven't spoken up about it in a number of years on social media because I don't really engage that way, but that might be something to consider. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna preface my my answer with those remarks. Here's the first thing, though, that I absolutely think we should do for Pride Month. I absolutely think we as Christians need to dedicate ourselves to prayer, uh, and prayer of the type that Daniel prayed in Daniel chapter 9, where it is, a, it is an intercession to God on behalf of the nation asking for repentance. Lord God, we have sinned. We have sinned. And I think Christians are culpable, uh, not, not that they've sinned by um, endorsing pride, but I think the church in general has just said, well, let the culture do what the culture wants to do. We're over here focused on something else. 
I don't think the church has spoken boldly into the culture as we have the freedom to speak. In our culture, we do have the freedom to speak, and I don't think we've used that to our fullest advantage. And so, therefore, I think we should pray a prayer of repentance. Repentance uh, corporately as the church for not standing on God's truth and for compromising with it, and repentance on behalf of the culture who is okay with promoting and accepting any kind of sexual deviancy as long as nobody then turns around and points out my own sin. That's where we start. We start with prayer. Secondly, I think we start by speaking truthfully about the issue. All right? Pride, uh, pride is the um, roundly condemned sin. Let me say it this way. Pride is the comprehensively condemned sin in the scriptures. And so the, it's interesting that they've named it, quote-unquote, Pride Month, because God is a God who opposes the proud but exalts the humble. I think it's no mistake that the LGBTQ movement is called the Pride Movement. I think that's absolutely of Satan, because it is something that is throwing in God's face his original design and his intention for humanity, for mankind. God designed a man and a woman, so one man and one woman, to be joined together in what is called marriage, and in marriage, those they were to procreate, they were to have children, they were to then raise their children according to God's truth, and Pride Month, or the LGBTQ movement, largely uh, is opposed to God's original design. Now you're going to get the you're going to get the occasional um, pride person who says, "No, I, I I want to be married to my my male partner or my female partner. I want to be married to them, and I want to try to have children and everything." But they can't do it naturally, and so it's forced. It's a it's a forced um, compliance with what's with something that society would find more accepting, although. I don't think that's the majority of people who are promoting and celebrating pride. Pride is something that God hates. Pride is the original sin of Satan. Pride is uh, the downfall or has led to the downfall and the sin of many of the great characters of faith in Scripture. Now, it, it didn't make them lose their salvation, but it certainly caused them to sin and live with consequences. So I would say, you know, as we begin to talk about Pride Month, repenting from pride in general. And what that looks like is repenting from your own way of doing things, from your own ideas, and then adopting God's ideas. So my idea, let's say, let's say I'm an LGBTQ person. My idea about sexuality is that I should... Um, fulfill my sexual desires. I should fulfill whatever I want to, whenever I want to, with whomever I want to. Um, it could be with another man. It could be with a woman. It could be with a man and a woman. It could be however I want to do it. And, and so you're first of all going to repent of the pride of ruining, or not ruining, but perverting God's original design intent for how to use your body in a sexual way. You repent of that. Then you repent of uh, pursuing the wrong kinds of sexual intimacy. 
we repent of both of those things. That's where we start to talk about uh, Pride Month. Pride is not a, not a virtue, it is a vice. And unfortunately, we, we now look at pride in our culture as a virtue, and humility is the vice. So the first thing I would do is pray. The second thing I would do is begin to address the pride movement from the perspective of God hates the proud but opposes, or God is opposed to the proud but exalts the humble, and and to talk to them or to try to make statements regarding the the arrogance of mankind to pervert God's original design. A third thing that you might consider would be a boycott, and uh, in if you followed the news over the last maybe two to six weeks, you have seen some very successful boycotts, one against Bud Light and Anheuser-Busch for their partnership with a quote-unquote trans woman. Okay, it's actually a man who is pretending to be a woman, but Bud Light partnered with them, and they have lost a great amount of uh, business and value in their company. Another one uh, over the last maybe seven to 10 days, again, this is June 1st, was the partnership that Target did with a satanic um, pride clothing and accessories designer. And uh, that, um, that caused a lot of backlash and a lot of people boycotted Target for that. Now, the idea of boycotting is not new, but there are too many companies who support Pride to, or Pride Month to boycott all of them. So if you're going to boycott a company, it needs to be a specific company for a specific period of time, and you should just probably join a boycott that is, that is already underway. It's not going to be possible for you to boycott everybody because, okay, so maybe I boycott Target. What about Walmart? Well, they, they also give to you know, pride causes, LGBTQ causes, but, Target, or, but the difference between Walmart and Target is that Walmart is kind of doing it, uh, and they're not, they're not celebrating their advocacy of this, or at least I haven't seen Walmart celebrating their advocacy of this, whereas Target has made it a major marketing campaign to focus uh, on celebrating um, specifically transgenderism, but also the LGBTQ movement in general. So if you are going to boycott something, pick something meaningful that many, many other people are boycotting so that it actually has an effect on the particular company. What else to do? Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, you could make some social media posts. I think I'll be considering that particular option. Um, You could, if you're really... uh, if you're really able to, you could go to a pride celebration and attempt to talk to some of the individuals there. That may or may not be effective. It, it depends. Uh, you may be inviting uh, yourself to become a viral moment. I'm not sure that that's the most effective way to go about combating this. But I think, too, we need to, as churches, speak against this from the pulpit so that everybody in our congregation is clear where God's Word is and where God stands on this particular issue. All right, well, that wraps up my thoughts for this week's mailbag, this episode's mailbag. Thank you once again for your patience and the delay on getting these episodes published. I'm going to be trying to do my best to try to have one out every other week. 
And so, you know, we'll just see how life goes. May God bless you, and I pray that you would be fruitful in your labors for Christ as you seek to serve Him. God bless you.